0: We're coming back to First Corinthians, and it's good to be back actually. I, I got to spend some time this week obviously preparing actually I've been preparing for several weeks as we head into an, a new a new section of the book shortly. But I thought maybe let me just bring us up to speed we'll just kind of we'll rehash some of what we've looked at, make sure that we're you know even though even though we do this week after week. It's still good as you as you come in to the Word of God. Your context protects you from saying things that the, the Scripture is not really saying. Your context helps you to determine the intended meaning. So as we go into little paragraphs, one paragraph at a time, or as we zero in on on one verse, we want to always be aware of what's happening in the larger picture because that will that will keep us accountable to make sure we're ...being faithful to what Paul really intends here. So let me just back up and remind us that as the main body of the book of 1 Corinthians opens up... ...the issue that Paul addresses is that there's some quarreling taking place in the church. There are people who are taking different sides on different issues. We don't really know for sure what's going on. We just know that Paul got some report that there's quarreling taking place... And in the church body, people are then looking to different God appointed leaders and siding with those people on this issue against these people on the issue as though this leader is against this leader, as though they take different positions. And Paul says, What is Christ divided? Does Christ send one person, Paul, go tell him this, Cephas, go tell him this, Apollos, go tell him this? That's, that's the implication. If we're siding against one another, playing favorites with different leaders, saying, oh, I actually follow Paul on this one, over and against Apollos. It implies that Christ is divided, and Paul, Paul says Christ is not divided. There's a, there's a unified, harmonious voice that God is speaking to us through these different leaders. Well, one of the problems with this that we, we come to find is, is that Paul is being ousted. As, there's, as people are choosing favorites, Paul's being marginalized. He's kind of being pushed to the outside. And so what he has to do in chapter 1 is he has to, starting in verse 17 up through two, chapter 2, verse 5, he has to reestablish... His gospel. Because when you start pushing Paul out, you start pushing Paul's gospel out. And that's bad. So he reestablishes the gospel. And what he reasserts is that this foolish gospel is actually the wisdom of God. So interesting how God has done His saving work through this message of Christ. Crucified. A crucified Messiah. Who who thought of that? The great wisdom of God in that is that it's camouflage to the wisdom of the world. They don't spot it.
1: They look at it and say, that's stupid. And then God
0: saves people through it. And the foolishness of God turns out out to be the wisdom of God. And the wisdom of the world turns out to be foolishness. Because they miss the most glorious display of glory that has ever been. So Paul has to help them understand that this foolish message is not foolish. And in fact, the foolish message... Was brought to a pretty unimpressive people, Corinthians. Remember, who you were, chapter chapter uh, one, verses twenty six to thirty one. The Corinthians are reminded that they don't have glorious roots. And beyond that, not only was there a foolish message coming to some unimpressive people, but chapter two, verses one to five, it came through an unimpressive preacher, Paul himself. He didn't come with eloquent speech. Well, much of the problem in the Corinthian church is coming from the fact that the Corinthians falsely believe that they are spiritually very mature people, probably because they're a very spiritually gifted people. Chapter 1, verse 7, Paul says you're not lacking any spiritual gift. He he affirms the reality. You're, You're very gifted, but you falsely believe that you're spiritual. In chapter 2, verse 6, Paul says, I couldn't even address you as spiritual people, but I had to address you as people of the flesh. Your fleshly, worldly mentality has hijacked your view of Christianity, and that lens, that fleshly lens has distorted the way that you're viewing all kinds of things including the gospel, which he's trying to readjust for them. The other thing that it's really distorting is their view of leadership. So starting in chapter 3, verse 5, to chapter 4, verse 14, he starts addressing their view of leadership. Now, the Corinthians are infatuated with the spectacular, right? The Corinthians are living in the Manhattan of the ancient world. So they you know, they know what is beautiful. They know what is great. They know what's savvy. And they're infatuated with it. And they have taken that view of greatness and they have cast it onto the leadership of the church. And Paul has to explain now leadership from God's perspective, which is different. So he explains that each leader has different gifts. Each leader has different callings. You've got to stop trying to make Paul... Responsible for things that Apollos is called to, or vice versa. Different gifts, different strengths. Paul plants, Apollos waters. And all those gifts are given for the church body's good. Chapter 3, verses 18 to 23. This is good for you. Receive what God has for you from these different leaders. Stop choosing your favorites. When you choose your favorite over and against the other, you're excluding some good that God is intending to give to you. So don't play favorites. That's one of the ways in which leadership has to be kind of redefined. Everybody's got an assignment. The second thing that's closely related to that is, according to those assignments, those leaders will be held accountable. It is required of a steward that he must be Faithful, chapter 4, verse 2. So Paul says, my main concern with regards to my calling and my responsibility to the Corinthian church is that I am being faithful to what God has assigned me to do. So, I want you to stop judging my motives for what I'm doing. That's what he says in chapter 4, verse 5. The third thing that he confronts with regards to a false view of leadership is the Corinthians' belief that Um, the Christian life offers you your best life now, we might say. Some have said, actually. And Paul says, no. The the kingdom of God has not already arrived in its fullness. We're waiting for things. We're waiting for great things. But we can't expect that our life is just going to be sweet and cherry right now. We are a suffering People. So Paul has to explain that his own suffering as an apostle is not a sign that God's favor is not on him. You can see how this, how, how a, a leader, I mean, this is supposed to be God's leader, right? And he starts going through a tough time. You can imagine how easy it might be to be like, huh, I wonder if he did something wrong. <laughs> well, Paul says, no, suffering is normative for the Christian. And what we are called to is to beautifully endure it. There's something amazing when a Christian beautifully endures suffering. Strong in the Lord. Steadfast. Stable in hope. Why in the world would you be stable in your hope in the midst of this incredibly trying circumstance? Answer, because Jesus is all I need. There's something glorious about that. So he has to help them rethink leadership in those terms as well. All of it is in need of adjustment because the Corinthians are not viewing Christianity, they're not viewing the Gospel, they're not viewing the leadership through the lens of the Scriptures, which means they're not viewing it through the lens of the Holy Spirit. They're viewing it from the same lens that the rest of the world is viewing. Everything, namely, The worldly lens of the flesh. That's the lens that they've applied to Christianity. So, in their pride, and in their puffed up idea of spiritual maturity, they find Paul, his gospel, his leadership unattractive. And Paul is on a mission to try and readjust the lens. And that brings us to today's text, chapter 4, starting in verse 14. This section is a bridge. Chapter 4, verse 14 to 421 is a bridge that connects everything that Paul has done before up up to this point in the letter to what he's about to do. Pretty major shift coming in the book right here. And this is the bridge. There is a... Past, present, and future feel to this passage. He's going to talk about what he's been talking about. He's going to talk about what needs to happen now. And he's going to talk about what needs to happen coming up. And the way that he builds the
1: bridge is with the image of fatherhood.
0: Fatherhood is explains what he's been doing in the book so far, what he's been doing in this letter. Fatherhood explains how they ought to be treating him right now and how they ought to be living right now. And fatherhood explains what he expects them to do moving forward. Okay, so fatherhood is what creates the past, present, future bridge in our section here today. So that we can get to chapter 5 next week where where we're really going a a new way, a new direction. So, let's talk for just a minute about Paul's fatherhood imagery. Read with me, if you will, in verse 15. 1 Corinthians 4.15, he says, For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. As Paul presents himself as a father here. It really is an attempt to reestablish his apostolic role in the church. There's a need to reestablish. It's falling apart. They're not honoring it. They're not seeing it. They're actually doubting it. And Paul is bringing father in her, fatherhood in right here to reestablish apostolic identity. There are two things. Two fatherly qualities that he's going to emphasize. Fatherly affection and fatherly authority. That's, how the, that's, how, that's what fatherhood brings to the picture here. So let's start. Let's look at how fatherhood helps us understand what has been happening previously in the book. Here's the past element of The bridge. Fatherhood with regards to what Paul has been doing in the book. The point here really is that everything that he said so far has been motivated by affection. Motivated by a desire for the church's good. Motivated by love. Fatherly love. You can see it in verse 14.
1: Read with me. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as My beloved children. Contrast. Shame versus admonishment. The purpose
0: of the letter in which he has addressed quarrelsomeness, favoritism, fleshly rejection of Gospel truth, pride in their giftedness, False views of greatness, false views of leadership, false views of prosperity. The purpose of the letter, up to this point, is not to shame them. That's not Paul's ultimate goal. It's interesting, though, let me just pause, it's interesting that he has to make that clarification. There is a type of love that can be mistakenly understood as having shame as its goal. There's a type of tough love that can be misunderstood as, is he trying to shame me? So he has to qualify. He has to clarify. That's not what I'm trying to do. It's just worth noting. The
1: purpose is not to shame them. The purpose is to admonish them. Now, Another parenthetical thought here. It doesn't mean that the Corinthians
0: should be unashamed of what they've done. What they're doing. It does not mean that they should be unashamed. And this is the reason that I say that. Because there are two places later in the the letter where Paul says, I say this to your shame. First instance is in chapter 6, verse 5 where believers are suing one another. Believers in the church suing one another. Paul says, I say this to your shame. Uses the noun form of the same word. Happens again in chapter 15, verse 34. There's some ongoing sin taking place because of some false views of the resurrection. Paul says the same thing. I say this to your shame. Meaning, there are things taking place in the church that the church should not be proud of. They should be repulsed by the fact that they're suing one another. They should be ashamed of that. They should be humbled by that and they should want to flee from it. The Corinthians, if they're really taking Paul's rebukes at this point in the letter, if they're really taking them seriously, they're realizing that their behavior is shameful. It's not fitting for a Christian should not be this way. But, Paul's goal is not to promote some ongoing sense of condemnation. The goal is not to shame. It's to admonish them as beloved children. So what does this mean? What's the contrast? Might be some shame taking place, but that's not the ultimate goal. The goal is to admonish. The idea is that Paul intends to bring some sort of corrective influence. He wants to correct something that's gone off course. It's admonishment, not a desire to leave them with a sense of utter disgrace. Just leave them sitting in that. That's not what he wants for them. It's corrective in the end, not deflating in the end. Does that make sense? Feel feel the difference? I want to correct this. I don't want you to just be wallowing in this hopeless
1: sense of total disgrace.
0: He helps us grasp the intention by regarding the Corinthians as his beloved children. His beloved children. And that gives us some
1: imagery that we can take hold of, doesn't it? A father
0: and a mother. Must admonish their children. You have to admonish your children. If you love them, you must speak corrective words. You must bring corrective influence into their life. Corrective actions. Our goal as parents, right? Speaking to you parents now, and 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 teachers, anyone who's working with children. There's there's an application here for everybody.
1: The goal is
0: not, or shouldn't be, to shame them, to disgrace them, to deflate them under some heavy-handed, ungodly pressure and process of humiliation. That's not the goal, right? Ephesians 4, forefathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bringing them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The goal is that we see our children walking in life. Go in the right path. When we talk to our girls about why we have to discipline them, we say, you were walking toward the fire. I had to stop you. I love you. This is the right way to walk.
1: It's corrective. We want them to live. Paul wants the Corinthians to live. So,
0: there's a gravity to the instruction. There's a gravity to our instruction, to our children at times. You know what I mean? Sometimes you have to help them understand the seriousness of what's
1: taking place. Because they are
0: our beloved children. That's what love has to do sometimes. We don't want them growing up, resisting authority, feeding every fleshly desire, addicted to pornography and desensitized to sin, admiring ungodly role models. We don't want this for our kids. So there's just stepping stones that go straight into the pit of hell. We do not want that for our kids. We stand in the way of those self-destructive trajectories because we love them. So there's gravity to the instruction. You know, you talk to your kids about defiance to authority. We don't say no to our parents. We've got to talk to them about that. There might be some gravity in that discussion. But we talk about in our family the
1: uh look at me attitude. When you walk in a room,
0: are you the Here I am, person. Or when you walk in the room, are you the, oh, there you are, type of person. Do you have a look at me attitude? We have these conversations about pride with our daughters, wanting to
1: be praised. We also talk about the
0: I wantsies with our children. I it. this is David Pallison's turn. It's just a little kid way of talking about the lusts of the flesh. The I want these, I want it, I need it. I must have it. This is what drives
1: tantrums, right? I must have this toy
0: or die <laughs> You bring at appropriate times and with appropriate methods weighty corrective admonition, and as our t- children come to feel the gravity of that from time to time, we pray that they do, well, of course, we want them to feel. To sense conviction of sin. As that happens
1: in our children's lives, they are probably going to feel shame. Ashamed of what they've done. And there are two things as a parent that we have to do to manage shame.
0: One, you've got to minister the gospel. That is the time to minister the gospel to your children because they sense, this is not good, what I have done. And they are ashamed of it. And
1: Christ says, I will take that from you. His death was shameful so that they don't have to carry that.
0: Don't be the parent that says, I want my kids to own it. For themselves, so I'm not going to talk to them about it or pursue it until they come talk to me about it. No! Minister the gospel to your kids. Give them a worldview. Don't let them build a worldview from Nickelodeon. Give them a worldview through which they can view the world and through that at some point pray that God would help them make it their own. But don't fail to minister the gospel to your children. I don't want to fail to minister the gospel to my children. That's the first thing you've got to do when there is shame. The second thing you've got to do is remember, shame is not the goal. Correction is the goal. You want to see them living in a new way. You want to see them walking in a different way. Way. Have a new vision for life. We don't do that. This is what we want to do. This is why I want you to live this way, son. This is good for you. We give them a new vision. And that's what Paul is doing for the Corinthians. He wants them to live in a new way. He's bringing fatherly admonishment not to leave them in their shame, but to restore what's proper for a gospel community. You're Christians for crying out loud. Live like you belong to Jesus. He wants them to live that out, which practically means they need to stop rejecting Paul and his gospel. Practically for the Corinthians, that's what it means. You must stop rejecting Paul.
1: Because Paul is the one who brought
0: them the gospel verse 15 again for though you have countless guides in Christ you do not have many fathers for i became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel now just to clarify paul's point here isn't saying hey let me still be your friend because i was there first this isn't like this isn't like some uh desire to like still be friends or just you know because I had the priority, I should still be on the on the you know nice list or
1: whatever. The point is, I'm your father in the Lord. And I know what I'm talking about when it comes to the gospel. I was there, and it was through my gospel that God gave birth to.
0: Me. In a, I mean, the frustration that's going on in Paul's mind. You can imagine your kids go off to school, they come home,
1: and they are ready to go to war with you over the issue that storks deliver babies, and they're going to fight with you over it,
0: and they are ready to argue, and they're like they're living a little bit differently or maybe majorly differently in light of this. You just go with the
1: illustration. And you're like, son, I know how babies come. I was there.
0: The frustration in Paul. You're rejecting the very Gospel that gave birth to you, and you're rejecting the One who brought it to you. I know what I'm talking about when it comes to the Gospel.
1: Live like a Christian. Don't reject your father.
0: Don't reject this Gospel. I want you to start living differently. Embrace me and start living differently, my children. And that's where he lays the emphasis next. He's explained to us now why he has been talking to them the way that he has. It's for admonishment, not shame. Now, the implications of Paul's fatherhood have a
1: present
0: implication, namely that his fatherly role calls for their present loyalty to his ways
1: in Christ. 1 Corinthians 4:16
0: and 17. I urge you then, be imitators of me, Paul says. That's why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. To remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. In every church. Imitate Dad. That's, the, that's, his, that's what he's urging them to do. Imitate me. Embrace
1: the motto, like Father, like Son.
0: Embrace that motto for, for, your, for your church. I follow Jesus, Paul says. Watch me. Follow my ways in Christ. Listen to your brother Timothy. Don't be a renegade church. I'm teaching you all the same things that I'm teaching in all the other churches. I'm your Father. I love you. Stay on course with me. That's what Paul's doing here. There are two jewels, though, that I want to pull out of this. I'm looking at how Paul is... I'm just looking at Paul, the Christian, the man of God the leader in this passage and what he's doing here. And there are two things that I'm seeing that I think will be uh, precious for us to look at. One is this, this little insight.
1: His life matches his claim to the point where he can
0: call people to imitate them. Paul's life matches his claim. Paul says, I believe the gospel. Paul says, I'm a Christian. Paul's life Reflects that reality, the gospel makes a discernible impact on the way that he lives his life. He talks a different way because he 's a Christian, he treats other people a different way. He spends time in different ways than he he 's a different guy he 's not the same person he used to be. I, I think it 's a great question to ask ourselves: Where is the Gospel impacting me? Is the gospel making a discernible difference in my life? Do I live different than I used to? Does it continue to impact me? Does it influence the way that I treat my family, my small group, my friends, my neighbors, my coworkers? Does it influence the way that I spend my money? Does it? In- what impact does the gospel have on our lives? How is it burying itself and bearing fruit? That's one. Just. I think, neat little jewel that we can see in Paul's life right there. Here's another thing. Here's a second thing. Paul has multiplied himself into other children who can further the mission. In verse 14, Paul said to the Corinthians, uh, you're my beloved children. In the NIV it says, my dear children. Verse 14. In verse 17, Paul says that Timothy is his beloved child. The NIV says, the son whom I love. So if you got an NIV, you won't catch, you won't catch that this is the same phrase. you've got an ESV, you'll see the Corinthians are my beloved children. Timothy is my beloved child. But when he talks about Timothy, he throws in another adjective. What is it? Verse 17. Faithful. I have beloved children and I have my beloved, faithful child, Timothy. And I'm sending him to you.
1: This dude is faithful. He listened to his dad.
0: Timothy is faithful to the Gospel. And because Paul has taken the time to invest in this, One man.
1: He has now multiplied. Paul has multiplied his ability to disciple the Corinthians. See that? One man. And now, Paul can't go to Corinth yet. Can't go. But Timothy can go.
0: Timothy is faithful. What we're seeing here is just a glimpse into this web of discipleship. Paul has built he learned it from his master Jesus He's taken the time to invest in Timothy and Timothy because of that investment. he's familiar with Paul's ways in Christ. He's not just a mimic of of Paul himself. Paul is following Jesus, Timothy's following Paul as Paul follows Jesus. It's Paul's ways in Christ that Timothy is familiar with. It's Paul's ways in Christ that he has sent Timothy now to the church in Corinth to remind them, is the word he uses. Remind them of what they already know, of what he's already taught them. It's a cool picture. This interconnected web
1: of relationships. There's been
0: an intentional, a, a purposeful, investment in the lives of other Christians that is now working to preserve the health of the church in Corinth as the people of God are working
1: to serve, what's our phrase? One another. Serve one another.
0: This this, this discipleship here is working at two levels. It's working at the level of Paul, Paul, is, is some sort of fatherly investor. We call it impartation, impartation discipleship, and then it's working at the level of Timothy, who's bringing a brotherly reminder.
1: This, this, this maybe we call this application.
0: Got the the impartation, and then someone coming alongside and stirring it up. Let's put this to work. So, I just think that's so cool. And it,
1: it, and it makes me. It makes me just wonder how might God be speaking to you through that right now.
0: Relationships in your life that God would have you enter into discipleship with others in an impartation or
1: application type of way. I I, I just get excited at that thought. Could Could be in your
0: own family, right? Husbands and wives just talking about the sermon afterwards with their kids, stirring it up. To, you know, just, probably not today. Super Bowl Sunday. I don't. People aren't going to go home and be talking about the sermon.
1: Do it if you can. Maybe on the drive home. I don't know. But you know, is 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 any is anybody taking the sermon? I'll be done in what?
0: Let's see here. Just give you a timeline, and so I know what time I'm at. Okay, it's 3:40. I'll be done in the next 15 minutes.
1: Will there be any ripple in terms of application?
0: Stirring it up. Anybody going to help stir it up in your home? Husbands and wives helping one another stay in the Word, devote time to prayer, lovingly helping one another see blind spots. Encouraging one another before the day starts. Shine and share Jesus today, sweetie. As you go off to your callings, any encouragement to shine Christ to the lost? Praying for one another? Reading the Bible to our children? Teaching them how to confess sin? Or other people who aren't in your own household? You know, just people... Just people... In your small, I'm I'm not saying, let's start a new discipleship program. I'm saying, anyone in your life, anyone in the pew next to you, need a brother or a sister to spend some time with, have someone into your home once a week, once every other week, once a month, ask some hard questions, minister the word to one another, spend some time together, pray for one
1: another. What an amazing work of God might unfold in this church body as the people of God gathering together in different contexts to serve one another. So, let me back up. Paul is saying to this church, embrace the father like,
0: like father, like son motto. There's two jewels there. One is that his w- life is worth imitating and the other is that this man has been a disciple maker he can send other people into the field to do the work because he's been an investor. So the fatherly image helps us understand what Paul has been doing. Helps us understand what Paul now is calling the church to do with regards to their loyalty to him and his ways in Christ. And the third thing in the building of the bridge
1: is that Paul's fatherly role explains how he now calls them to put their house in order. They need to now put the house
0: in order. Verses 18 to 21, some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. And I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? Coming soon. It's it's a warning. That's how this functions. It functions as a warning to the church. And here we see Paul's fatherly authority coming to the forefront. This is is Paul who has now reestablished his fatherly role. He's, He's commented on his fatherly affection. He's now bringing fatherly authority, warning them, I'm coming
1: soon. You need to put the house in order. The major concern is a group of people that he simply calls
0: these arrogant people. Their arrogance consists partially in the fact that they say, Paul's not coming back. It's just one of those itinerant preachers. He's not coming back. That's part of their arrogance. But it goes deeper than that. These people are deeply infecting the church. And when Paul arrives, if the church has not resolved the issue of these problematic people, then Paul is going to have to demonstrate the fact that these people talk big, but they cannot back themselves with power. So there are three things I want to do here in closing as we just look at this last part of the passage. Three things I want to point out. Really, these are questions, I guess. One, who are these people? Two, what kind of power is Paul talking about exposing, or lack thereof? And three, what's the point of the warning? So number one, who are these people? It seems that it's some influential faction in the church body. It's an influential group of people. And they're probably the ones who are instigating the trouble that Paul has been addressing all along. They're the ones leading that fleshly, gospel-distorting, anti-Paul rhetoric and mentality. They're bringing the worldly influence into the church, and they've got, a lot of, they've got a lot of traction in the church body. They're the ones who are most directly being addressed in places like chapter 3, verse 17. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. He's not he's
1: not happy with these people. Destroying the temple,
0: destroying the people of God. Number two, what kind of power does Paul intend to investigate with regards to these arrogant people? Paul's already talked about the relationship between words and power. Chapter two, verses one to five. This is what he said. When I come to you, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. My speech, he goes on to say, and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in a demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Now this group of people, they talk big. They talk big about the maturity of this church. And they talk big about the spirituality of the church in Corinth. How gifted they are and how wise they are. And Paul's going to show up and he's going to say, is anybody being saved? Is there any power of God for salvation? The Gospel is the power of God for salvation. Is there any indication that people are being transformed from the inside out? Is there any evidence that the kingdom of God is advancing in power? Evidenced by the fact that people are saved. Is anyone being saved?
1: Is anyone growing in their relationship with Christ? Is there any fruit? He doesn't seem to think there's going to be any problem answering that question when he arrives at the church. Third question.
0: What's the point of the warning? You'll notice that Paul is not addressing the divisive party directly.
1: Who's he addressing? Addressing the
0: church. The church needs to take care of this problem. If the church doesn't care for its own health, then Paul is going to have to come and bring fatherly discipline when he comes. That's the image he uses. Verse 21, he's going to have to come with a rod. The Old Testament background here is simply what the Old Testament calls the rod of correction. Proverbs 22.15, Proverbs 23.13 and 14. It's the equivalent of a church Spanking. I have no idea what that would have looked like. But it's not good. The picture is, I'm going to have to come as a father who has to bring discipline. If you won't take care of this. What would you like? You want me to come like that? Or, if they do take care of it, then he can come with a pleasant fatherly demeanor. In love. In a spirit of gentleness. Now, the use of love there is talking about the demeanor. Re- regardless, Paul loves the church. How do you want me to come? You want me to come in fatherly fatherly love in terms of discipline? Or you want me to come in fatherly love in terms of kindness and gentleness? You? It all depends on whether or not the
1: church will take care of sin. What's the point of the warning? The church has to take upon itself the responsibility of dealing with sin in its midst. And with that, the bridge is complete.
0: I have been admonishing you with fatherly affection. I am now urging you to listen to your brother Timothy and to imitate my fatherly example of Christian living. And I'm warning you to get the house in order with my fatherly authority. And that launches us into chapter 5, where Paul gets into the very tough discussion of the love of God for the church
1: in the form of church discipline. That's the bridge. You'll notice at the bottom of your bulletin, I think, Are there a bunch of verses down at the
0: bottom? Okay.
1: Church church discipline.
0: We're diving in at least for the next three weeks we'll be talking about this. I'd like to ask you if you'd just be reading through these verses prayerfully. I want you to know that as we go into 1 Corinthians 5 and we hit this topic, I want you to be able to have already been spending some time in the New Testament and know that this isn't an isolated incident of this kind of thing, this kind of teaching. This is a New Testament teaching. If you spend some time in here, it'll just kind of get your your, your mind prepared. It could have some questions maybe, stirring, maybe the sermons will be answering those kinds of things. So please prayerfully be reading through those passages. With that, let's pray
1: as we prepare for the Lord's Supper.
0: God hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in Him, so that you may abound in hope through the Holy Spirit as you consider what Christ has done for you. Taken away your failures and in His active obedience, fulfilled the law. He didn't just give you a clean slate. He fulfilled all righteousness. Oh, How marvelous, how wonderful, go in peace, you're dismissed.